Welcome to Advantaged Insight. My name is Wayne. Welcome back, everyone. And today, uh, again, I, I keep going through these end things. So unfortunately, this will be the last uh, Sharn, uh, of the Sharn series today. And uh, I'm a little bit sad, but knowing what's coming up, no spoilers, a little bit of secret. Actually, we might even, you might even know by the time this, this one hits. Um, but I do have my favorite Eberron podcaster here, even though he doesn't have a, a podcast anymore at this point, Christian Serrano. Welcome back to the mics. Hey, thanks for having me again. If Christian's on the mics, everybody knows that we're going to be talking about Ebron. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Sharn, which we've done for the last uh, couple times. And now we're going to close off our Sharn series with Sharn campaigns. And really what our goal is, the topic really is, is how to prepare a game master or dungeon master, depending on which game you're using, and how do they run a Sharn campaign? And, or maybe as a player, what would you expect to see from a Sharn campaign? And really, we're going to break this down. You're going to hear us repeat a few things that we've done before, but really we want to hammer home the point of running a campaign in Sharn rather than just running some sort of urban adventure. Of course, Christian can help me out here. So Christian, one of the things about running a Sharn campaign that actually a couple people on, on Twitter and on uh, I think G Plus have actually asked, they want to know how do you run a Sharn campaign, but specifically What's this mind mapping technique that you've talked about? Uh, I believe you talked about this last time. Yeah, so mind mapping, it's both um, a brainstorming technique, but can also just be a way to sort of sort out your ideas and your thoughts, or just to kind of collect information and draw associations for reference or for communication to others and so on. So in this case, what I've used mind maps for, especially with a Sharn campaign, is to uh, first I'll start off with the center, which is like, what do I want this adventure to be about? Or what is the adventure about? Who does it focus on? What does it focus on? Et cetera. Or what, what event does it even focus on? Right. And then uh, what I'll do is I'll start drawing sort of points from that center sort of circle, right? I draw lines out and then I'll draw like another little bubble with like, okay, it's going to be this person, right? Okay. This person wants this thing. And then, well, what's the motivation for that? And then I write off another little bubble. Here's the motivation. Okay, what conflict might there be? Well, it might be because this other person wants it. How does this affect the PCs? Well, maybe the PCs were sent to investigate the event that occurred around what this person did in order to get that thing, you know, and so on and so forth. In some cases, I've even, like in, in, in one of my campaigns, for example, I had the party interacting on some level with uh, House Tarkanon. And so they were in, they were interacting with um, Lady Tavin. And it turned out that the, so they're, they're known to be assassins. It turned out that the assassin that they had, that she had assigned to, I guess, an assignment that impacted the, the PCs, that assassin happened to be, in my story, in my version of Ebron, the daughter of Calvin Ryuk, who is a very high-level figure in Sharn, and high-level in, in status, not necessarily in uh, levels, right? It just kind of went really crazy in terms of like the, the the relationships and so on. Now, what this allows you to do when you when you do this mind mapping technique, you can create really complex plots and complex webs of intrigue, and with them, you can create twists and certain reveals that are presented to the players as things unfold. It also allows you to pivot. So you might have written something down earlier that you know this is the relationship, or this is who this is, or this is who's responsible for that thing. But you can always change it if you need to, just to make it a little bit more interesting and a little bit more intriguing. It also allows you to not worry about as much about what the players do and how it's going to affect your game. Because you know the motivations of those characters, of the NPCs, for example. 
you know what they're trying to accomplish, you know what they're after, and they're going to do what they need to do in order to accomplish those goals. They're also going to understand, you're, you're going to understand what threats that they're dealing with. So they might be reserved on taking action, things like that. So it makes it really easy for a GM to pivot and maneuver and also then occasionally reveal to the players what's going on. The reveal is also really important. RPGs are not like films and they're not like novels. You can't make those clues really hard to find. You have to make them attainable and easy to, easy to discover. You can, there's, there's dozens of podcasts out there that I've talked about how to run an investigative campaign, for example. And it's always about don't make the plot hinge on one small clue that is impossible to find. You know, you have to give them something to keep going and moving forward with. So that's, that's really important too. Now, in some cases, a reveal, if you really want to make it really intriguing, a reveal could be betrayal where that person that was their ally isn't their ally or that person that was the villain's ally isn't their ally. It's actually somebody who's working with the, the PCs behind the scenes, but they didn't know that. That's a big trope that's often used in like noir or even pulp in general. Mind maps, again, make it really easy to do that, to, to pivot those things and to introduce those kinds of elements and, and track them, quite honestly. For mind map, going a little bit deep into it, do you have a specific software or something that you use or do you just get a big piece of paper out and start drawing? There's this amazing technology called pencil and paper that I use that is fantastic <laughs> for that. <laughs> so I've done it sometimes with software. I don't like to depend on software too much because really for an RPG, I don't, I don't, I don't need it. I'm not trying to collaborate with somebody else in real time or to share it digitally or anything like that. I just need a piece of paper that I can, you know, bring to my campaign and have in front of me, write on, scribble notes on, expand, erase, do what I need to do. I, I say keep it simple. You're not busy then in the middle of a campaign, for example, trying to, or an adventure, a session, I should say, trying to manipulate the software. You're just focused on keeping the game going. Let's talk about that. So you've told people how to map out, if not a session or a few sessions, at least part of the campaign. So we've talked about this in previous times. We've talked about action and intrigue. And you and I will agree that without that high-flying action, and without that dark intrigue, it's just not Eberron. And especially, it's not Sharn. I will venture to say, without that intrigue part, it's really not Sharn. So, how does a DM or a GM go about enforcing those two pillars of Eberron play? Well, I think there's there's a couple of factors to Sharn that are that are important to keep in mind. First of all, Sharn's magical characteristics should always come into play. Whether you're doing high-flying action, you know, whether it's on a sky coach chase or on the edge of a balcony and, and you know, it's also always raining, so that's always a really good element to incorporate mechanically as far as like impacting combat and things like that. But I think what's what's also important about Sharn are are consequences to actions. There's a high concentration of political and social power in Sharn. And they can be allies, they can be villains, they can just be people who just are movers and shakers and, and keep things changing and, and such. It's a really good idea to pull that in. And that's where that intrigue can come in, in terms of uh, keeping things complex and, and sort of keeping players on their toes. That could be said about any urban campaign, right? That's a pretty common trope. But I think with Sharn, it's the things aren't always as they seem. There are very, very dark secrets. There are long histories. There are desires 
ambitions, things like that. And like I said, there's that high concentration of power. People who have it, people who are seeking it, people who are looking to wield it. And those are all things that I think that, that should be you know, brought to the surface very frequently and not just something that's just looming over the players. Does that make sense in, in that regard? No, absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. I think one of the things that... And we'll talk more about the, the tropes a little bit in a sec, but it's very easy to basically identify a noir or a pulp film. Mm-hmm. The Mummy or Indiana Jones, you know, those are very easy to identify. But right. to try to translate that into an RPG is more difficult because you're kind of missing that visual element. You're missing the the obvious hero. And you mentioned earlier, you're missing that, hey, the protagonist didn't see the clue, but the camera will focus in on it to make the audience realize, hey, that clue was there. Nobody saw it. Right. Or the author can simply say that the protagonist found the clue, right? It's not left to chance. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's plot driven, right? Um, we can't script those things because dice are dice and sometimes they don't work in our favor. Yeah. So for the listeners out there, that's definitely something that you want to take in, into account because of this intrigue. And obviously with intrigue, you have a lot of, you know, investigation or mystery. Um, you can't leave that to chance. You can't leave a clue. You can't leave oh, this is an obvious clue. You can't leave that to the imagination, I guess. You do have to be a little more specific and whatnot. And I think there's certain cases like, you know, mechanically speaking, different systems offer different solutions for that. For example, I think even 3.5 D&D said, really only call for a skill check unless if the person's under duress. Otherwise, you know, they should just be able to take 10 or take 20 even and find the thing. There's ways to work with that if you need to. On Advanced Insight, we've we've actually mentioned a couple of times about the gumshoe system of how it's um Right. It's very good at giving you the clues. I mean, I walk into the room, okay, here are the clues. Exactly. I mean, you know, the plot's not gonna move forward otherwise. Yeah. You know. Now the 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 thing about Sharn and what makes it different from say Forgotten Realms and such is that or Eberron in general, is that it is directly inspired by and motivated by those types of films. So when you watch the Maltese Falcon or The Big Sleep that's a heavy inspiration for Sharn. But if you've ever watched The Maltese Falcon or The Big Sleep, it's not the kind of film that you can kind of just sit back and watch halfway, you know, and just like while you're doing something else. It's very dialogue driven. And there are a lot of complexities to what people are saying, how they're saying it, what's their body language, the way they look at each other. These are all things. There's not a lot going on on the screen visually other than those subtleties. So sometimes it helps for the GM to actually sort of describe those things. Like he seems to cock his head to the side a little bit, you know, in a sort of quizzical look or in a doubtful expression or, you know, those kinds of things. I think that can give that feeling as well. Or they just go, oh, he cocked his head to the side. We're going to jump him and we're going to attack him. <laughs> There's that. He's right? the villain. He's, he's the like, villain, obviously. Oh, no, wait. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but you got your mind map. So if he kills him, you know what's going to happen next. So <laughs> yeah, you can map something else, right? Yeah. So let's go into, as a DM, you know, a lot of times we let the players go do whatever they want, make whatever characters you want. But I feel with a Sharn campaign, you want to be a little more focused. So as a DM or as a GM, Christian, what would you do to sort of direct uh, the players into how to make uh, characters and how to build a, a party of maybe not adventurers, but someone who would live in Sharn and um, you know, you'd be able to carry the story forward with them? I think part of this just goes into general jamming advice. If you're going to run an urban campaign, for example, 
you want to have a conversation with your players and say, you know, that druid character you're thinking about might not work well in this campaign, right? So there's so there's that. In general, though, um, I think it's important to portray, especially in, in class-based systems. For example, D&D didn't have the inquisitive class, right? So how do you know, you're like, well, I want to play an inquisitive. What do, what do I do? Well, obviously a rogue would be fitting for that, but you might want to do, you know, maybe some variant of that or, you know, a rogue fighter, a rogue fighter thief acrobat or, you know, some weird combination of that. Or maybe they're, maybe they, they work for a church, but they're sort of playing an inquisitive type role, right? Um, there's different ways to do that. So I think there's some uh, conversation that can be had there with players to, to sort of coach them in, in what they want to do. If you're using it with a different system, let's say Savage Worlds, which doesn't have a class, you're going to want to focus on certain skills and abilities in that regard. What edges will be important? You might want to take the you know connection edge or something like that. You know, that'll be important as well. No barbarians? <laughs> yeah, well, you could. Actually, I had a character who was a barbarian shifter, and it actually worked out well because he was basically the muscle, and that's fine. But he also knew not to just go into any random tavern and go berserk because he knew that he would face consequences. Uh, for him, it was more of, he was a you know, relatively intelligent guy. And uh, for that character, it was it was more of, he had an allegiance to one of the other players, to one of the other player characters, and was sort of like, you know, the, I guess kind of like a like a Chewbacca type, you know, that loyalty, and wasn't looking to to necessarily go out and, you know, into the wild and hunt things or, or whatever, anything like that. One of the things I found, especially with, I guess, in general with an urban campaign is, is those connections. I mean, if you're going around murder hoboing, you don't need many connections between the characters, but for something with, with intrigue, especially, uh, I find that the connections and the, the background and the bonds or, or however, whatever system you would want to use or talk about with that are, are really, really important, uh, in terms of character building and even, at, like with your mind map, mapping those characters to another NPC or to something in the story to give them that hook. Yeah, and that's that's a really good session zero type of thing to do. As you're creating the characters with the players, do it do it in a group and talk about like how do you know this person? What's your relationship with this person? Why would you work with this person? And I think that's really important to establish up front. That's true for any campaign, regardless of system or setting. Because you're going to want to have that sort of inherent loyalty, not just like if you have two people who are ideologically opposed, why would they work together? What's their connection? So sometimes it might be just simply saying we're going to be with an alignment of each other, you know, not alignment in the mechanical sense, but alignment in terms of our motives and such. Or you might just simply say, I don't agree with you, but I'm loyal to you because maybe we served together in the last war and, you know, we keep each other in check kind of thing. There's all sorts of connections that way. The Last War is a really good mechanism for that. You could also do like a template kind of thing. Like we all work for, say, uh, House Therani as spies, or we all work for the Sharn Watch, or we're all part of, you know, we're all Dark Lanterns kind of thing. So there's opportunities with that as well. You're leveraging the, the existing organizations for that. Now that you bring up The Last War, actually, we would be remiss to talk about any campaign without referencing that. So specifically for Sharn and for the people in Sharn, mm -hmm. what was the effect of la the last war on Sharn and how would that kind of pour over to, to player characters? Sharn itself was pretty untouched. It, it was never assaulted or anything like that by, um, or under siege during the last war. However, post-war, a massive, massive 
influx of uh, refugees, especially coming from Syria, for example. A lot of veterans, a lot of people who, who sustained war injuries and are disabled or who don't have a home or lost their families. There's a lot of animosity, a lot of anger still uh, post-war. Remember, the, the last war didn't end with peace. It ended with the destruction of Seir and a treaty, right? The, it wasn't necessarily one where people felt like there was resolution to it. And in fact, Sharn, or not Sharn, but Eberron in general, four years since the Day of Mourning, two years since the Treaty of Thronehold was signed, there's still a lot of tension and still on the verge of reigniting the last war yet again. So there's a lot of tension, especially among the different communities within Sharn. You'll see people proudly waving, you know, their flags of different nations or wearing their their armor and such from from whatever nation uh, they had fought for. That's a good thing to to also bring into play uh, if you're playing in Sharn. Maybe you you fought for the opposite side. Maybe you yourself are are a Syrian refugee, or maybe you're uh, a Thrain worshiper of the Silver Flame. You know, living in Sharn. You know, how do you interact with Brayland? You know, or Braylanders in general. Actually, it's something that I didn't put into the topic, and I just thought of now as we're talking, mm-hmm. is time. In terms of how quickly or how slowly does the campaign go? Because obviously, when you're run, adventuring out in the woods, you kind of don't track like a lot of GMs, and myself included, don't really track time because there's that travel there, and there's oh yeah, you spend like five days in the dungeon because you need to come out and rest. But in Sharn. Time works differently, right? I mean, your stuff is day to day. You try to finish stuff pretty quick. I mean, first 24 hours of an investigation, right? That kind of thing. How do you handle that? How do you handle time inside of a a campaign like that? You know, it's interesting because um, I was literally just reading this last week. In the Sharn book, there's actually a a section toward the back. There's literally a chapter, chapter eight, a Sharn campaign. There's a section called Pace and Advancement. One of the things I had to talk about with regards to pace is having spans of time between adventures. Like once you're done with a certain case, or even maybe in the middle of a case or story, whatever it might be, it could be like weeks that go by. And the GM should talk about that and let players do things and accomplish things during that time. Otherwise, you, you get this feeling of like, God, I just cleaned up this mess. Now I got something else coming up. Like, you know, like does crime ever stop or does, you know, do bad things stop happening in Sharon ever? The answer is probably no. But it shouldn't be happening to the players every day, right? There should be some lulls in for them to, to just kind of relax and, and take care of things on their own, whether it's story or, you know, crafting a magic item, whatever it might be. So in a given adventure, it's very, it's kind of cool because you can track like hour by hour what's happening. But then once they solve that, give them a break, let time pass. You know, maybe it's a week or months, you know, before the next time they encounter the next adventure. And I think that's a really cool way of, of showing that the city is, you know, that things move on and, and things kind of keep moving forward chronologically. Something I, I thought of, I remember kind of glancing over that in, in the, uh, the Sharn book. Mm-hmm. So we're going to kind of get down to our last couple of questions, which are pretty ex- big, actually, but pretty expansive. So one of the things that we've always talked about is to go back to the tropes, is to basically go back to your source material and do that. So... Once I've watched Indiana Jones or The Mummy or Maltese Falcon or almost anything Hitchcockish for the mm-hmm. you know intrigue stuff, how do I translate that into uh, a campaign in Charmed? There's two layers to that, in my opinion. One is the story itself, the type of story that's being told. 
So for example, let's say you're reading a Sherlock Holmes story or, or maybe you just watched an episode of Sherlock, right? You can borrow pieces of that, adapt it and make it your own kind of story or make it an Ebron story. Inject, you know, because in Sherlock, they're all human. Well, what, what would happen if it were a changeling who can change how they appear? How does that, how does that impact the story, right? So some really cool ways you can, you can manipulate that. What about gnomes with illusions, you know, things like that? The second layer, I think, is the technology. Uh, so in the case of like, say a car chase, it'd be a sky coach chase. Well, now you're also up in the air, you know, however, like a mile high up in the sky, right? You have a complex web, a three-dimensional web of towers and sky bridges and things like that. Uh, these sky bridges have magical properties. You can jump off one and land safely on the next one with a featherfall effect, right? So there's that aspect of it that you can use to twist the story and make it unique. So I, I think that's, that's really it. You know, consider too, like the different monsters, the different, uh, I already mentioned the races, you know, magical spells. Like, you know, if you're trying to solve a case, what magic could you use to solve that crime? You know, speak with dead might work, right? That's something different that you're not going to see in Sherlock or the mummy or anything to that effect, right? That's, that's a very unique thing to D and D. I think that there are. Yeah, there are just a lot of really cool things about Eberron and the fact that it does take, in the case of 3.5, which is what it was originally created for, it takes those ideas, those mechanics, and it says, what would a world like that logically look like when you use that magic as technology? And that's what you can pull to the surface to make those stories different and tend to make them Eberron-ish, is the, you know, the common everyday things. They have hospitals in Sharn from House Jorosco, right? And they have apothecaries with healing potions and things like that. And these are just common things. You know, they're just every day. Going to the hospital should be normal. It shouldn't be something that's super expensive and rare. It, this is a common thing. And that's what you can get, you know, from a story like that. Actually, let's, let's go into that just a little bit, just because I know that is something that a lot of people, when Eberron first came out, they had an issue with magic as technology or the way I kind of wanted to look, I would always look at it is, it's not as necessarily as technology. It's more like magic as an industry. You know, you go from Forgotten Realms where there's a lot of powerful magic, but it's exclusive to this is an industry that we have. It's not just a cottage industry. It's a, a money-making endeavor. Right. And that's definitely a, a flavor that you can't ignore in Sharn and you can't ignore in Eberron. Right. So if you take the idea of like, for example, an inn where they can make your food with prestidigitation taste really, really amazing and they can clean the water and they can, you know, heat it or cool it or, you know, imagine being able to get cold ale in a medieval setting, right? Like that's something new and that's something different and unique, but it makes sense. Prestidigitation is not a high level power. It's pretty easy to achieve, you know, as, as far as powers go. I think that's the other thing too, is people mistake Eberron as being high level magic everywhere. They, they, you know, they'll, they'll mistake it for high magic and it's not. It's, it's a high availability of low level magic. And that's, that's a different thing. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. That's, that's why I like to use the word industry rather than technology because technology feels like, you know, I've got my cell phone and I've got, my, you know, sorry, not even cell phone, smartphone, and I've got my laptop, and I've got my tablet. But it's more like everybody has access. It's more like everybody has access to a phone booth for free, right. uh, almost for free. Like, right. 
and everybody has access to, you know, a taxi, you know, or, or some sort of transportation. Right. Or a flashlight via an Everbright lantern or the telegraph with the uh, speaking stones. Exactly. Like it's this industry that, yeah, you still have to pay for. Yeah, it's not like you're carrying the processing power of a Cray computer from 1980 in your hand, but you still have access to something like that. Now, to be fair, like we shouldn't dismiss the word technology because even in the, like, say, you know, early 1900s or late 1800s, that was still technology, right? Like having a train was technology. It's just not digital technology as we know it now. So I just, I just want to clarify that from a semantic perspective, you know. I think one of the things is that how would you convey that to the players, especially someone who's never looked at Eberron before? How would you convey that that level of, of magic and that level of technology and that level of availability? I, I guess I think you really put nail on the head. What, how would you convey that level of availability of magic to, to a player? It's easier than people think. Just make it seem mundane. Make it seem like it's just an everyday thing. Yeah, you hop on a sky coach and just head over there. No big deal, right? Yeah, you take a lift to go up to the tower. No big deal. If you try to emphasize it as this magical, wondrous thing, it does make it seem like it's this big, magical, wondrous thing. But it's not. It's mundane. Everybody's doing it. Everybody has it. It's everywhere. You know, you, you have an everybody lantern. Big whoop. Okay, great. So does, you know, they're, they're all over the streets. You know, who cares, right? That's not a big deal. It'd be like somebody handing me a flashlight and saying, oh, man, do you know what this thing can do? It can store energy and it can shoot beams of light. And it's like, it's a flashlight. Like what, that's the trick. That's really the trick of it is uh don't try to make it seem so mysterious and so powerful. Just just make it like, oh, you know, you can go to the hospital and go check in. Like if people are like, where can I get healing? You know, if your characters are acting like that, then you can have the guy on the street be like, you could just go to the hospital. It's right there. You know, that kind of thing. It is because it is mean it's mundane and it's ubiquitous and everybody knows about it and everybody knows how to get access to it. And, you know, it's not uh, it's not unattainable. So as we kind of wrap up some things, what are the most important things to remember about a Sharon Cayman? I, I, I know that we've talked about a lot of things, but if a, a DM or a GM is, is like, okay, I'm starting the campaign, what are those things that he or she has to keep in the forefront of their mind uh, to remember about a, a Sharon campaign? Well, I think for a GM, it creates relationships between PCs and NPCs so that you know there can be love interest, there can be new allies, there can be people who might be indebted to the PCs. And then you can use those connections for future scenarios or reuse, I'll say make heavy use, but reuse place names, have that common place that they go to frequently. And they know the people there, you know, that they're, they're maybe they're heroes in their neighborhood, you know, like the Luke Cage type characters. We talked about that in one of the previous episodes. If you want to emphasize different features, like different districts and such of Sharn, do so. Find one that you like in the book, for example. If it really interests you, like say the Kalistar community, and you really want to focus on that, maybe you have a Kalistar in the party, do so. Make that a, a theme for you know a few sessions or even for a whole adventure. Also, and this is just true for Eberron, things don't always end well. People die. Villains get away, either physically or legally. <laughs> maybe, you know, yeah, they were caught, but maybe they escaped the judicial system, right? Maybe, you know, while a crime or a problem might be solved, not all loose ends are resolved necessarily. And that can be frustrating for players. So make sure that they're aware that that's the style of the campaign before you do that. <laughs> Cause they might just, you know, flip a table on you. But, uh, <laughs> that's also, I think, a really important thing to remember about not just Sharn, but Ebron in general. I hope that everyone's been listening to the last 
few episodes. I, I think we've had uh, four episodes in total about Sharn and, and Eberron. And um, I hope everybody kind of goes out and, and takes a look. I know there's actually a very high level of interest right now uh, in Eberron. I know there's a, there's a new mm-hmm. there's a new actual play campaign, Maze Arcana, uh, that's out. That's uh, being done for 5th edition. Yeah. Uh, starring uh, Satine Phoenix and Rudy Ruderberg. I know that uh, Keith Baker is very, very active on the Eberron boards, especially on Facebook. Um, so definitely you can see some of the stuff that he's doing. And I know that there's something in the background that uh, I believe Christian is working on. Um, we don't want to reveal anything quite yet. We don't want to, uh, we don't want to jump the gun quite yet, but keep your ears open and, and listen in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. You'll, you'll definitely hear about it when, when it, when it happens. You'll, it'll be really hard to not know about <laughs> it. I think <laughs> that is very, very true. Well, unfortunately, this kind of wraps up our Sharn and our Ebron campaigns and our, our current series. I definitely hope that we have something uh, going forward with this, uh, whether in this form or something else. But I would like to thank Christian for coming on the mics and uh, and speaking with me several times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thank you for having me several times. I've, I've really enjoyed this, Wayne. Uh, thank you so much, honestly. You know, listeners out there, if you want to have Christian back on the mics with us, you know, just definitely shoot us a line. But uh, Christian, if people want to contact you and, and chat with you and, and pick your brain more about Eberron, where can they find you? Uh, well, just on Google Plus, I'm there. Um, I'll respond. And uh, there is an Eberron community there. Uh, it's not super, super active, but every now and then somebody will post something and I'll, I'll definitely chime in. And uh, yeah, that's that's probably the easiest way to find me. So yeah. That sounds good. And uh, we'll have a link in the show notes uh, to both the Facebook and the Google Plus thing, as well, as well as Christian's contact as well. So you guys can just spam him. Oh, yeah. I just want to remind everybody that uh, Advantage Insight is a misdirected mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Again, Christian, thank you so much for coming on the mics. Any last words uh, before we, we wrap up the series? No, no. Just uh, I'm kind of sad this is the last one. And, and again, thank you so much. This has been fun. It really has. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye now.